0: Hello, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga. This week we're talking about Venezuela and the end of the pink tide. I am joined by Phil, as usual. Phil, say hi.
1: Oh, hi, hi, hi! All hail the night king. How's it going?
0: No, don't do that again.
1: Uh, don't be mad. I just started recording. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, we know we'll get some form of punishment. So, it
2: sounds like the Marxists living in protest against. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Alex's punishment sounded more exciting.
0: Than <laughs> I didn't even let on, but it was. It was that's, it. That's, um,
1: that's what made it so exciting. I think it's just very sensitive. Okay, let me take my shirt off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we're joined by Ben Fogel, who I'll we'll introduce in a second. Say hi, Ben. How's it, Bree? All right, so I'm, I'm just going to introduce Ben, and then we're going to chat a little bit about various things, um, including one very important subject, which I know we're all looking forward to, Um, Ben Fogel is a regular contributor to Jacobin magazine he's got an article in the latest issue on the pink tide and uh, he's doing his PhD in Latin American history at NYU and is a contributing editor to Africa as a country he and this is a deep misfortune supports Manchester United but on the other hand believes doping should be legalized in sports and maybe we should we should do an episode on that at some point
2: I should also mention I'm South African so excuse any strange accents and sort of uh, a trigger warnings due to my unfortunate South African accent.
0: Well, Phil's constantly calling me Irish on this podcast, so you know. <laughs> as for as for strange accents,
1: they're all round. Yeah, I, I refuse it's to, it's okay. I refuse to. Well, I was going to say South. <laughs> I was going to say South African is much more offensive than Irish. So, so yeah. now it's much better. So.
2: At least, at least, none of us are Australian.
1: <laughs> yeah. And for that, everyone is grateful. <laughs>
0: Um, yeah. I should
2: also mention I'm the founding member of the BDS Australia movement, where we believe in the boycotters' invention and, and sanctioning of Australia until the Australian menace is over.
0: This is, <laughs> this is good, oh, joy, i
1: I'd join that, definitely.
0: And not, and not just like to get rid of the regime that rules Australia, but to just sink the whole island.
1: Well, I mean, personally, my <laughs>
0: view is that
2: I strategically support Chinese imperialism. I believe that China should take over Australia. Because as much as I oppose what China is doing in Tibet, I believe China knows how to deal with annoying minority cultures. And nothing would be more annoying than Australian culture. And they wouldn't force them to eat with chopsticks, learn Han Chinese, get rid of their Australian identity
0: very quickly. (laughs) This is excellent.
1: Oh, yes, I totally support that. Absolutely.
0: This is good. We could just do Australia bashing instead of talk about Venezuela today.
2: Well, you know, it's much easier and less depressing.
0: That's right. Um, So regular listeners of the podcast will know that we normally kind of do a whip round at the beginning and do, you know, kind of an opportunity to bitch about what you've been thinking about this week and what's been annoying you. But we don't want to talk about what's, well, it is annoying. It is annoying. And I think we've all been thinking about the same thing because I realized that we all independently thought about this this week. And that is the big issue on everyone's mind, which is the mooch and his sad departure. Um, Phil, you've been thinking about the mooch.
1: Yeah, um somewhat indirectly um in the sense that it's still kind of striking to me um how little or how short people's memories are um but also how little people take account of the fact as to um the fact the trump administration is just not fascist the only legislation that it's managed to put forward are these sanctions these new sanctions against russia um, which clearly kind of seemed to go against the tenor of what Trump stood for, which was to say rapprochement, um, rapprochement with Putin. The um, the attempt to kind of um, overthrow Obamacare has failed. There's still apparently lots of appointments that haven't been made. So anyway, I mean, it's um, and then, you know, he gets through a new press secretary in 10 days with chaos, constant leaking and the usual kind of... Um, the usual disarray which is so familiar to any, anyone who follows politics, even superficially. And it's just so transparently obvious that um, the Trump administration is has no kind of ability to impose any ruthless centralizing agenda. It seems unable even to concentrate executive power to the extent that previous administrations like Obama and the Bush administration were. Um, And it also is just unable even to run an orderly kind of efficient um, administration within the White House itself, let alone kind of uh, hijack American democracy. Now, all that said, I mean, though it's very clearly not fascist and all those people who are chanting fascist, I think, um, should hang their heads in shame and be made accountable for their um, inability to actually analyze what's going on. But also, I, st- I still think that despite that, um, the overall effects of the Trump administration might nonetheless be to continue to degrade the institutions of the American state and American democracy, even if even if um, inadvertently so, and even if in a kind of um, even with the kind of low comedy, Of characters associated, um, you know, characters associated with Trump, like wonderful people that have been brought into our lives. I mean, I
2: disagree very strongly about low comedy. I think the (laughs) mooch after a progression of the low comedy of Sean Spicer was high comedy.
0: It's right. It's a it's a high well, it's a higher quality of disappointment, which is what I think the the Trump administration brings us. I think the 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 accelerating madness of the White House is an an alloyed political good, in my opinion. Like when. Drawing up, I think as many non-Americans and certainly pe- people at any case who didn't, who don't reside in the United States, drew up a little scorecard of Hillary versus Trump and what you'd actually prefer and what would be better for the rest of the world. And you know, on that, like Hillary came out better, like on balance, but it was it was close. Like there were at least the Trump's more anti-interventionist noises he was making at the time seemed better to to Hillary's neoconservatism.
2: Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I made the misfortune. I had the misfortune of moving to the United States a few years ago, and I've been living there. So one of the... There's a I mean, like, I would like to... I'll put the, I'll bring the mooch into this. From my experience living there, I would say that um, the forces of reaction are quite happy with Trump right now in terms of the sort of lump in American rights. They don't really see... it's the Actually, the firing of the mooch seems to have actually upset a lot of them because they are like, this guy left his wife for Trump, which he did. <laughs> he missed his child's birth for Trump and still Trump dumped him after he's shown nothing but loyalty, unlike those bas- backstabbing cucks throughout got, the rest. Got, got cucked by Trump. They got cucked by Bannon. Bannon is the master. Yeah. So I think the interesting, the, the, the interesting dynamics of this seem to be that Bannon has become the force of stability within the White House. And I mean, I'd like, you can call him the cuck master, but he has gone from being this fringe polarizing figure to the one guy who seems to have his, the last say on who gets fired and seems to have a way of counteracting the influence of Trump's uh, fail son-in-law and uh, daughter, who seems to be the guy who brought, thanks, thankfully brought the mooch for all of us to enjoy for those glorious 10 days. But I would say, like, while Trump can't seem to get a lot done, I think he might behave increasingly erratically and try to do, make shortcuts in foreign policy, but the real depressing thing for me is just the disarray of which the forces or the resistance, so-called forces against Trump have rarely appeared in the United States. At the moment, it doesn't seem there's a sustained movement against him. The Democrats are worse and useless, and everyone seems to be fighting among themselves and going a little bit crazy. Yeah. I think under Hillary, there might have been a potential for building a more uh, forceful movement against the Democratic Party right now. <laughs> it's have moaning off about Russia? But maybe that's speculative.
0: Well, I mean, just to drop. I mean, how old how old are you? You look you look good for your age. You're Sagittarius. <laughs> uh, I'm old just, enough to remember just, the Bush. I'm old <laughs> enough
2: to remember the Bush years.
0: Just a little bit of a uh, mooch style nagging.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, you can you can nag me whatever
0: you want, Alex. <laughs> this is this is getting a little bit intimate. More intimate than I expected. Um, Phil, you don't want to add anything about the mooch? Uh,
1: well, I mean, um, or just to. to- well, to reiterate the point, I mean I think the um I think there is a I think it's even, you know how do I say this? So even though it's, you know, not fascist, fine. I don't think and even though the um inability to impose an agenda is um significant. Nonetheless, I think that the long even the medium to long term effects of all of this might be to degrade American democracy in the sense of um, increasing kind of um, this furious polar ideological polarisation, which um, is kind of um, along cultural fault lines rather than around substantive political issues, and also to enhance apathy and cynicism and suspicion and breed kind of um, paranoid paranoid conspiracy theories about the way in which the state operates, the forces that are at work, you know, in various kind behind the state, um, and generally kind of political fragmentation and disarray. And I don't think those things are positive.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Um, that the point's been made that, you know, the, the Democrats look very weak right now. And at the same time, the GOP looks also, despite the illusions that some Democrats have, the GOP is also itself very weak and is unable to, to sort of pass a healthcare bill and things like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things to think of. One, one of the good pieces of developments in American politics since uh, Golden Dawn took over, and besides that, those beautiful ten days of that beautiful Guido from Long Island who told Baden, told the world that Bannon likes to suck his own cock. Anyway. Um, is the growth of the DSA, the Democratic Socialist America. While they aren't exactly a political party and are still developing their politics, the fact there's now a socialist organization in the United States, with, which reached 25,000 me- members last week, is a development which hasn't been seen since the 1960s. So I think there's still energy among young people for the Bernie Sanders style of politics, but what it's really, what's really depressing that I've noticed, and I think this a form of anti politics denial, you see, I think you saw this during the Bush years as well, is that this turn to, uh, among mainstream politics and the, the more so than the Bush years, the degeneration of all these institutions of American political life, like the New York Times, into Russia conspiracy theories. And I'm still not over the degree of paranoia and conspiracy mania about Russia, which has even forced Trump's hand now to declare sanctions against them. I mean, there seems to be no voice for real politic and say, why do we actually have, why are we enemies with Russia? I mean, yeah. these are two nuclear-armed powers. We don't really agree, disagree about that much.
0: No, and something we discussed on, on episode 12, so so check that out, kids. Speaking of, of uh, polarization, um, I think we should move on to Venezuela. Um, I think anybody... I don't want to introduce too much about Venezuela because it's, it's fairly obvious what we're talking about. It's a country, um, though it's talked about so much by the left and by the right in in such contrasting images of it that one's tempted to do a sort of Baudrillard and say, maybe Venezuela doesn't exist. Um, (laughs) Living in Latin America, you know, you're confronted by these right-wing arguments where it appears out of nowhere that it's like, oh, well, you're turning the country into Venezuela and such and such. Um, Such right now, actually, there's a voting going on in in Brazilians' uh, chamber of representatives uh, and there's a... So I think, Ben, you had a suggestion of a drinking game that that a shot is drunk every time Venezuela is mentioned.
2: Although I think it might be risky. I think if you did that drinking game, you would be passed out by now, considering how many times it's been said already.
0: Right. Well, there we go. That's just like an illustration of how much Venezuela figures in the popular imagination, and not just in Latin America, but elsewhere. Part of the reason for that is because for a long time, it seemed like, from the perspective of the left, a bit of an oasis in the desert. Um, at least in the early 2000s. Even through to the late 2000s, it was then seen as the sort of vanguard of the pink tide, and now almost the last man standing, albeit barely. So I guess the the, the question to start off with, and I want to ask Ben this, um, is there something redeemable about the Chavista attempt to transform Venezuela, and when and how has it gone wrong?
2: Well, I grew up in South Africa, and uh, where Venezuela might have figured in the... Um, Latin American imagination, Zimbabwe kind of figured in the South African imagination as the basket case of where everything went wrong when people tried land reform and absolute collapse. And now don't get me wrong, uh, Zimbabwe is far more authoritarian and far more degenerated than anywhere near than Venezuela has reached. But it's worth, I understand, the sort of figure of paranoia that Venezuela has lurked in the consciousness of the right and liberals. Now, I think there's a lot to defend about the um, Venezuelan uh, experiment with Chavismo, Um, and I think some of the legacy holds true for the left across the world. Now, I was having a conversation with some comrades here in Brazil about this earlier, and I think there is perhaps one world historical moment as opposed to historic victories within within Chavismo, and that, of course, was the 2002... coup in which you had all the forces of uh, i guess imperialism and american empire as well as the venezuelan bourgeoisie and elements of the military turn against chavismo and remove him from power before he had even made a radical turn and the historical thing is it's one of the few cases i can think of internationally where a where a coup attempt like this has been defeated by the power of yeah. the people you have famously had this the people came down from the barrios uh, which were mostly on these hills surrounding the middle-class neighborhoods in Caracas. They descended from the hills and took over the um, city and dragged um, Chavez quite literally from the forces that kidnapped him. And that moment of a popular mobilization defeating a coup attempt will go down as one of the few cases in history where there has been a, I guess to use a very sort of like crude populism, the power of the people triumphed against the forces of reaction. Secondly, I think that, um, while I'm not an economist or an expert on these matters, there were substantial increases in uh, all the measures of adult literacy, uh, unemployment, poverty reduction, social services delivered by the Chavez states. But uh, these measures are defendable in themselves. And, you know, you can look at all the basket case uh sort of kleptocratic um, oil states throughout, such as Nigeria. And you just have to compare the social gains under a de- democratic system in Venezuela to say, why are people attacking Venezuela compared to, say, Nigeria, which is a complete dis- dysfunctional state, if it even really could be called a state? And I think the... Other degree of the success of the Chavez model, it, it was a state founded on popular mobilization, which incorporated the communes and other forms of popular organization within the state to an extent. While, I mean, one of the positions on the left, such as uh, George Chicarello Maya, has argued they needed more of that as a solution to the uh, conjecture in Venezuela, it was also a way of thinking about alternative forms of state power. But where did it go wrong? I mean, the simple answer, and I guess it's a kind of banal answer, is the inability to transition beyond oil. I mean, it's kind of like uh, almost a reductionist argument to, to make, but as soon as oil pr- prices go, uh, the exchange system that what was in Venezuela became dysfunctional, and uh, Venezuela could not sustain its growth model on uh, based on oil prices. And now there's a number of reasons why the oil prices fell, but... I think it's almost banal to point out that you know, they can get beyond oil, but it's easier said than done. to transition yeah. for primary commodities. But the question, I think, is uh, the forces of authoritarianism and uh, in Venezuelan society were maintained. And I think also the other element is the degree of uh, the fickle nature of the Chavez coalition. So it was so dependent on Chavez's own skills as a politician and a, a sort of popular figure. Where did it go wrong? Or was it always doomed? I mean, I think these are some of the things to go on. Right.
0: So, I mean, I think there is a, it's a particularity of the viciousness of the Latin American right and of the American empire that it can make any vaguely progressive force look good anyway. Um, And the 2002 coup is an example of that. But I think we could, I would agree with you with Ben that we could go a little bit further. Um, Phil, do you not find that that there is something to be redeemed from the Chavez project, even if it might look doomed? from the point at which we stand now?
1: Um, I don't think so. Um, And it's not to say that there weren't, um, you know, uh, socio-economic gains. And I think um, the comparison with Nigeria is a good one. And I'm sure there's other kind of comparisons that would also kind of um, flatter uh, Venezuela in terms of the effectiveness of uh, a democratic system in being able to mount some efforts of redistribution and so on. I mean, I don't think I wouldn't say that it's simply banal to um to attribute the what's happening now to the drop in the oil price. I mean it, it, I think it's an important it's an it's a crucial observation about the failure of this um movement, which you know we have to bear in mind is also named for an individual who's now dead um, and the very fact of its over reliance on this single kind of charismatic figure is problematic in itself but it's failure and this i mean is pointed out in the mike gonzalez piece that was written in jacobin it wasn't simply a failure to diversify the economy which is difficult but that the economy has actually become more dependent on oil over the last few years um, and also just failed to build up any kind of um buffer foreign exchange and so on in order to see it through hard times in tandem with that you have the expansion of all sorts of um all sorts of corruption and um clientelism as the kind of um regime has embedded itself so i mean i think to you know i mean i think it's possible to identify positive gains that were made for the majority of poor venezuelans to identify rises in living standards you know before the crisis and adult literacy and so on um and at the same time i think um but it would be wrong i think to delude ourselves to kind of wave our hands over that and to call it socialism and uh, magnificent achievement and um, to imagine that that's something that is um, to be celebrated. I think that would be to set horizons very low um, and also to not all you know also to say that it would also um, take away from the responsibility of the current ruling elite for the impasse that they've reached at the moment. I think For me,
2: as like somebody who's not exactly, uh, as somebody who's read a fair amount of Venezuelan history and has followed the crisis quite a bit, Um, but as somebody who wants to try to give a perspective which is a little bit different to most of the perspectives on Venezuela, I think a crucial element of this is, um, and the current crisis, I think we have to look, look is the trend in the decline of the pink tide. I think most importantly in this case, and this is something Alex and I know a lot about, is the end of a center-left government in Brazil. I think the system in Venezuela uh, could be sustained to an extent if it had regional allies with which could absorb some of its oil, oil exports and also provide uh, money in terms of lending. And I think a degree of which Chavismo was enabled by Lulismo is uh, been understated. I think the importance of having a shift from, with all its limitations, and Alex and I said and we can talk for days about the limitations of Pater in Brazil, the change of government to this bunch of thieving degenerate fail sons, which currently run the Brazilian state after the coup here, has really meant a lot for uh, um, Maduro in that he no longer has any significant regional allies. Argentina and Colombia are both very opposed to um, Venezuela right now, with Colombia frequently having border clashes with Venezuela and Mexico, the other biggest economy in the region, it, of course, is governed by another Kalamish fail But I think the impact of not having regional allies meant that even the even going beyond the limitations of the oil economy, having a sort of developmentalist regime in Latin America is unsustainable if you don't have a group with you.
0: And I mean, I think this is interesting if you roll back a little bit that and maybe people forget this uh, nowadays, but Chavez didn't come into government with a radical program and presented himself as rather much more of a moderate. And he was a third-wayer um, and it was really only after the coup that of 2000 the attempted coup of 2002 that it became more radical Yeah,
2: right? but the other thing that happens in 2002 is when Lula is elected
0: precisely This is what I'm getting at right, so you've got you've got this kind of the rising pink tide as it were um, which uh, it gives them more autonomy um, in political experimentation than was previously possible um, and so I guess the point that Ben's making, I think, is right, that you have this rising and falling with the pink tide. Of course, what's, what, what is behind the falling of the pink tide itself is the, the the delayed impact of the world economic crisis in 2013 in Latin America.
2: Precisely. In my article, what? in fact, in the Jackman magazine, where there was references all about the failures of diversification. So I think it's entirely right.
0: And, and, and here's somewhere I think we could... If we wanted to do some uh, a brief summation of... Of the uh, of the end of the pink tide, it's precisely that there are unifying features which lead to the to the rise and fall of both chavismo and the Lul- lulismo in Brazil, uh, and for that matter in, in in the rest of the continent.
2: Although I think the other unique difference with chavismo and the other forms of era- central left era- governments that emerged is that. Unlike Melismo, which was a sort of attempted social democracy without confrontation, Chavismo was a form of confrontation, which was necessitated by that coup. And I think in terms of like the legacy or in terms of for future social democratic or socialist projects that Chavismo did is it was limited, but it was an attempt that attacked the um, foundations of economic and political power in Venezuela. It might not have gone further enough or done a adequate job, but it certainly put the fear of God into large sections of Venezuela. I think that's precisely why you have seen such violence in the responses to Chavismo.
1: Yeah. So I would, I mean, I'd, I'd, disagree, well, I'd say, I'd add something to the point about the pink tide and disagree with something else. So, I mean, I think with the pink, the other kind of important date is 2003, right? Um, which comes kind of the American invasion of Iraq comes hot on the heels of the coup, Mm -hmm. the spike in the oil price that follows the American invasion and inaugurates kind of um, higher oil prices for a time is important because it enables then Chavez to take advantage of the to take advantage of the kind of popular acclaim that he won um in terms of standing, you know, stand facing down his enemies domestically, but also gave him the resources in order to be able to mount redistributive efforts that would um play, you know, play to kind of play to his popular appeal. No, no, you've but convinced also, me you've
0: convinced me I'm not I'm not in favor of American war in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> well I
1: well think... what I was gonna say was it also enabled the kind of tawdry this tawdry, um tawdry kind of attempt to resurrect third worldism in the post-Cold War era. The um, fraternizing with uh, Gaddafi and Ahmadinejad. Um, and, you know, that was kind of the sleazier, seemier side of that kind of foreign policy. And also, I mean, you know, aside from I mean, aside from that, also politically utterly kind of politically insignificant in terms of any practical effect, simply kind of uh, political symbolism for show with no kind of actual um Impact in terms of you know significant impact in terms of world politics. So I think I mean I'd add that perspective. And I mean I'm sure I'm sure you're right about um, that. The kind of economic failures of the of the Chavez regime are mirrored. Um, I mean I know a little about the f- Brazil um, and the failure to divert. You know the failure to um, kind of properly improve say Brazilian infrastructure under the PT government. So I mean I'm you know I'm sure the kind of economic failure and mismanagement is a wider part of the story of the dimming of the pink tide as well. Yeah. Um, but the thing I was going to kind of take issue with I suppose is that the there is I mean there is a confront you know there is kind of a much more clearly kind of confrontational style and edge to chavismo compared to um, the tradition of um, the PT under the Lula under the Lula government. Um, but I'm not sure it's it's um, as politically meaningful as you and Alex suggest, in the sense that I don't. You know, it's not. It's failed to transform um, Venezuelan society. It's built up a popular base of support among um, the poor and the working classes, and you know, the inhabitants of the barrios. Um, but it's not actually transformed Venezuelan society, and I don't. You know, the I think the the rabid kind of um, and furious response of the traditional kind of oligarchic elites of of Latin America shouldn't be mistaken for or seen to be indicative of the extent of social and political change. I don't think there were significant efforts to kind of um, transform the economy in a meaningful way in terms of actually economic transformation, more attempts to kind of politically strengthen the regime in in terms of what it did try to do economically. So I don't see that it um, mounted any kind of genuine offensive. And the fact that Venezuelan society is so divided and so polarized, not kind of in the past when it's not like, you know, everything that we're seeing incipient kind of brewing civil war happened when Chavez took over or tried to take over. This is happening you know, years after he died, decades after the Chavista kind of phenomenon emerged.
2: Well, um, um, I think that there's a few points to make here. Um, one is, I think, one of the differences between Venezuela. Uh, I mean, at least as I figured it when uh, I was thinking about Venezuela, I was living in South Africa, is that other oil states that have uh, pursued uh, democratizing and sort of social policies have done under authoritarian regimes. Despite the right-wing critics of Chavismo, Chavismo was a relatively democratic regime. So compared to Gaddafi, which handed out certainly a degree of redistribution and achieved social gains in uh, Libya, especially compared to what's now, despite being a very strange and bizarre state, Chavismo occurred in the democratic state. The second thing is the civil war that we're seeing now in Venezuela is a delayed thing, is a delayed phenomenon. and It has prescience in Venezuelan history. The origins of Chavismo, if anything else, is the famous massacres and riots that happened. I think it's 1989. We can just check uh, mm. in response. The to, yeah, the Caracas in response to neoliberal reforms uh, issued by a president who promised to not do them. Where I mean, the, the official numbers are hundreds, but the unofficial numbers are probably thousands of Venezuelans were slaughtered by the, the army. And even there's been various instances, despite the myth of Venezuela as its model democracy throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s uh, and 80s in uh, Latin America, of this delayed civil war, which has been put into place. And as long as the profits were rolling in on the Chavismo, and the oil state, the civil war was able to be able to be postponed. So I'm I'm thinking... we're seeing a uh, repeat of one of the perpetual processes in Venezuela society. The next thing I want to add and where I'm going to push back is I think, again, I am going off uh, comrades and friends who know Venezuela better than I do, uh, such as Alejandro Velasco, uh, Gabriel Hetland, and others, is that Venezuelan society has actually profoundly changed. The, in the creation of these popular uh, communes and new forms of government and these social programs, literacy programs changed the way and the image in which millions of uh, working class and poor Venezuelan viewed themselves and participated in society. They made claim to a state in a way which had been exclusive before. And one of the sort of more sociological arguments made about the pink tide, as we made in Brazil as well, is that when you have these people entering uh, into sort of traditional positions in the civil service, which have been reserved for the upper middle class, it produces upper middle class hostility because their economic status is being challenged by the entrance of new people into these positions. And I think that's something you saw under the the state. I think the other thing I want to add is that now I've been thinking a lot coming from a country with a history of national liberation movement and where politics has been defined around the anti-apartheid struggle is does Chavismo leave a legacy despite him being uh, passed away and and we should mention, of course, that Maduro could stay. I mean, it's not like
0: yeah, the state it's could not done deal. And
2: in fact, I mean, I personally hope he does stay. So, wait.
0: Let, let me ask the question then, because I wanted to get into a little bit more of the specifics about what is happening right now, um, because we are discussing this in the week after the the Constituent Assembly vote. Uh-huh. Um, that attempt. It does seem that um, it's a it's a an attempt to create an alternative basis of of power and democratic legitimacy. But is it? an attempt merely to try to, to resolve a, a deep economic crisis through what is ultimately a superficial political means, or is there something more to it?
2: Well, I think we have, we seeing in terms of a historical case, and I'm speaking as a historian, I guess, which is always an annoying thing that people do. i speaking as a fucking historian, like that
0: anyway. I'm <laughs> uh, speak speak as a citizen, citizen Ben.
2: Well, speaking somebody thinking in historical perspective that um, what we're seeing is a state which is unable to resolve its economic crisis and is facing a coordinated campaign, both internationally and domestically, to take away any of its political legitimacy, trying to find ways of maintaining power. I think what we've seen with the Constitutional Assembly is that, regardless of the relative democratic merits of the proposals on merit, there's still a significant base to the Maduro state. There's still several million people are willing to up at least give it its tacit support through voting in this election. I think what it's trying to do is trying to find ways of ensuring its support and undermining the credibility of its opposition. So what we're now seeing, and again, whether you support this or not, is, uh, I think, a personal political choice, a state which is trying to maintain power in an extreme crisis and trying to find political solutions with these appeals to democratic legitimacy. Whether it's not successful, I don't know. But I think this is what's happening now with the constituent Assembly. It's trying to find ways out of... um, this attempt and this real coordinated offence which has been happening since it started, to undermine any democratic process or view of a democratic government in Venezuela. Although the Maduro government certainly is way more authoritarian than the Chavez regime has was before, even if some will argue that the authoritarianism of Chavez built this Maduro regime.
1: So, I just want to be I want to be precise about um, what I said before. So. I mean, you know, the comparison with Gaddafi is in no way to suggest that there was any kind of um, comparability between the authoritarianism um, of the Gaddafi regime. Oh, I, and, I
2: was just pointing that that they managed to achieve stuff in a different form. Yeah, I agree with you. No,
1: sh- sure. And I mean, the, you know, and I think one of the things, in fact, that particularly galled um the us and um western commentators in general about chavez was precisely the fact that he was democratically elected so whereas you know throughout most of the world in the post-cold war era they were able to um allow for this kind of uh slow kind of controlled and regulated forms of um democratic experimentation because the risks of escalating into some kind of popular revolt or upheaval were that much were that much uh, more reduced in the post-Cold War period, in Venezuela, you know, they weren't able to do that. And so I think, you know, the it was precisely the democratic character of the Chavez government that riled his opponents um, so much, both domestically and internationally. And all that said, when I say, you know, I think your point about kind of delayed civil war reinforces what I said about the failure of the Chavez government, to mount social transformation in Venezuela. And when I say social transformation, I mean to kind of transcend the conditions in which um, Chavismo emerged. So, you know, we can, I mean, um, the fact that the living standards and political loyalties and expectations and hopes of a great deal of the Venezuelan poor have been lifted up. As a result of um, Chavez's rule and the the fact that Maduro can still command such kind of popular support is indicative of a you know the fact that um, political allegiance was won, but I don't think it's indicative of transcending the transcending the social conditions in which Chavismo emerged, and for that reason I don't think it's worth dignifying it with the term of revolution or I socialism.
0: I think that's a fair point, and it's one which I think we've made in a more broad sense on this podcast before, which is that the left is complicit with the the conditions in which it finds itself. It's not just a a, a bystander. And in that sense, the fact that the Chavista regime finds itself facing a civil war or a coup, which is very similar to what it might have found 10, 20 years ago, um, is indicative of the way in which it hasn't really transformed conditions in the way that it might have done.
2: I mean, I want to. Uh, maybe I'm i a, I'm a little bit. Uh, I in my in my view, I think there's one other important factor about. Uh, I mentioned before the legacy of contest of contestation. What that means for me is. What uh, effective populist movements do is they leave a long-term historical legacy, in terms of a type of politics which is a call to as authority to mobilize around. And now in Brazil, right now we sitting with a legacy of Lulismo, of conciliation, which means it's really just got the cult of Lula rather than any sort of like uh, political legacy of the Perte in terms of a style of politics that goes beyond the individual touch of Lula to build onto. So it makes it very difficult to mobilize around the Perte right now, and I predict 10 years down the line it will be very difficult to mobilize a petismo that has a legacy because it doesn't have that legacy of confrontation that you can build on from further confrontations, which you would need to build a f- future socialist project. What Chavismo left, and which I think is worth thinking about, is it left a confrontation, and a left that, I still would argue, world historical moment, where the poor descended from the hills and managed to overturn a coup. So The legacy of confrontation, well, I can see it, even if the Maduro government falls right now and is replaced by some horrible right-wing government, which seems very likely, considering the character of a Venezuelan opposition, which seems to get be into uh, burning... Uh, dark-skinned uh, Venezuelans alive, among other things. Um, what it means, if there's a future resurgence of the left in uh, Venezuela, that Chavista legacy of building on the confrontation is something which I think leaves a deep-rooted historical legacy for Venezuela. And I think it's worth thinking in terms of a long historical cycle about that, even if you can acknowledge that uh, it failed to overturn the social contradictions of Venezuela that exist currently without facing a crisis of them. So
0: imagining that that Maduro falls, or even that he doesn't and holds on to power, but that has to resort to increasingly authoritarian means, that there's a civil war breakout, that effectively that they aren't able to mobilize the masses in defense of the current regime. The end, effectively, of the Bolivarian project, is it a disaster for the left in Latin America? What are its repercussions, do we think? Um, Or would it merely rid it of a Project which we might judge to have failed, and oh well, try again next time. Um, and then I guess a final point which follows on from that: um, if we think that the fall of and the end of the Bolivarian project would be a disaster, then must Venezuela be defended? Is there another option?
2: Well, I don't my personal view, and I think the end of uh, the end of Bolivarianism and the end of Maduro would be a fucking disaster right now. We're living in a very fucking depressing time, I say this again. We've just had this big fucking coup in Brazil, which I think is going to resonate for decades. Uh, We've had this uh, weird reality TV star without an interior monologue or any inter- ability to contemplate certain his own actions elected in the United States. We have this uh, wannabe French Tony Blair who uh, wants to be a Jupiter and a monarch, too, in France, and we have Merkel emerging as the star of uh, the international uh, version of good taste, as well as Syriza's uh, internal servitude at the hands of the, the Euro debtors. I think that the disaster, if Venezuela falls, and again, I point to the nasty character of a Venezuelan opposition who wanted to drop grenades on the parliament recently, uh, these guys are really bad and there would probably be a lot of repression and bloodshed if they got into power and would, at the least it would be a very, very bad social situation which they would probably be unable to resolve the Venezuelan economic crisis for at least a long time um, and really hurt a lot of Venezuelans so that would be a disaster in one. But I think it would be a bad setback for the left. So I don't think there's like a position we can take away we don't own the Chavez project or it's something that was failed. We have to think about it as like you know, there's not many good things happening right now, and I mean, uh, even recognizing uh, many downsides of chavismo, I don't want to see it removed in an undemocratic manner, and I don't want to see these opposition figures in power. And I do think, at least in my mind, that I don't I will defend a Maduro' uh, right to be in power, even if I won't defend certain of his actions. I also think that um, while I think many of the criticisms, both you, of you have raised of uh maduro and chavismo are very valid i do think that uh right now if chavez goes uh <laughs> that's the, that's the last big state with the left government in latin america unless of course uh mexico if his
0: ghost goes as well as his body
2: yeah because then we have uh, uh mexico which might elect uh lopez obrador who's a flawed character, to say the least, and probably the last chance of a center-left government in a major Latin American state. But again, mostly due to the fact that the Mexican uh, system has a, a great history of fixing election results and making sure the right people get in power. I wouldn't really count on that. But unless that happens, I mean, it's the last of a significant economy in Latin America to have fallen to the in the dream. Uh, and that, for me, is... Uh, Set of a new cycle of Latin American reaction, which is something else worth talking about. And we had a site last mm-hmm. time we had one of these cycles was in the 60s, and that didn't turn out very
0: well for everyone. Anyone. That's right. Um, Phil,
1: yeah, I mean, so my perspective is different, I guess, in a number of ways, um, with regards to just kind of contextualizing it. It seems to me, I mean, Chavez. Chavismo and the Maduro, you know, the Maduro government is the kind of, um, uh, I guess, the zombie form of Chavismo, um, and that it, for me, it simply belongs to a different era. It belongs to the era of um, of kind of George Bush, and Tony Blair, and the kind of era of um, Ahmadinejad. And the kind of attempt to push back again, the unpopularity of George Bush in the aftermath of the invasion of Iraq, it be- just doesn't belong to the era that is um, begun with the that began with the economic crisis. So whatever I mean, what I see in Venezuela is a kind of reorgan kind of Venezuela being brought into line with the wider developments in the world era, I'm as in the aftermath of the economic crisis. So, sure, yeah.
2: Phil, I have a question for you about this. Uh, yeah. what, what would a new, pol- I, don't, I mean, it's a fucking big question, but what would a uh, more aligned to the time sort of a left project in Latin America semi-resemble for you? Or at least the developing world. I'm just kind of curious. It was a big question. No, so.
1: Well, I was, I mean, I would say that, um, I mean, I can answer it, I guess, with relation to Venezuela. I think kind of being ruthlessly, as ruthlessly realistic as, poss- as, as possible, I think averting civil war, um would be an achievement and a success in Venezuela and I think a civil war in Venezuela would be a horrible I mean you know apart from the fact that civil wars are generally horrible I think it would be the worst possible outcome for any kind of political hope for the region and for Venezuela in particular so I think some kind of um you know some kind of dialogue process some kind of resolution of the internal kind of problems within the Venezuelan um chavista elite but some kind of dialogue and integration of the opposition um would be necessary and also i think probably in terms of just economic survival cutting deals with um cutting deals with major corporations who want to re-enter venezuela i think was probably necessary so this is something that is picked up in the gonzalez piece in jacobin his um disappointment and horror at the negotiations to open up a national park in venezuela to um to a Canadian um, mining, conglomerate mining, yeah. yeah a mining company I think I mean that kind of stuff I think is probably necessary um, simply to allow Venezuela to economically stabilize so I mean I think it's at that level I think that in itself would be avoiding the worst possible outcomes I think would be an achievement and I think being honest about what's possible I mean you know kind of um, growth economic growth um, improvement in living standards, improvement in all of those social indicators alongside maintaining democracy. I think those are positive things. But I mean, that's kind of um, developmental state capitalism and democracy. Those things are good, I think, in the developing world. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't kind of bless them with the label of socialism. So I think being realistic about what's possible is except, the first Except, thing. except
0: I, th- I think to, 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 um, to come back on you on that, I think the the recent history, and particularly in Brazil, has demonstrated the fact that that is not a realistic avenue to pursue precisely because the conciliation that's necessary to pursue that is, is not tolerated by, by, the, by the Latin American right. I mean, it is so short-sighted and vicious that even a, a developmentalist project, which might benefit in the long run, um, is ruled out of hand. I mean, that's the case. Well, I'm not, in I'm not
1: suggesting that it needs I'm not saying it needs to be conciliatory or that it won't that it might well require confrontation. Um, but I mean, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I just don't it, see that calling it socialist yeah, benefits anyone.
2: It, well, let's think about Brazil. Brazil, it's been argued. And I think to my mind, I'm half in the camp of those who argue this, that Brazil actually wasn't part of the pink tide in terms of the strategy pursued by the Brazilian state although the Brazil Brazilian left center left government was necessary for the ping tide everywhere else Lula and Dilma let's reissue it again did not do anything that displeased capital that much in fact their response to the massive recession that began in Brazil uh, around 2013 2014 after massive protests on the street against austerity was to give tax breaks to major corporations. I mean, what really more do you want in a, besides a, and austerity, besides austerity and tax breaks? Even that wasn't enough to satisfy these smooth brain uh, kleptomaniac uh, degenerate fail sons that comprise the Brazilian political class. They still wanted a coup. So I mean, even that, even the conciliatory policies, at its very finest under Lula who is one of the greatest polit- political uh, minds of, our, of the, this generation. He will be remembered for, oh, at least in my view, his political genius makes the likes of Blair and all of these celebrated Western politicians uh, pale in comparison as just in terms of his political skill wasn't enough. He's now facing, what, 10, 15 years in prison?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, Phil, isn't that, isn't that right that even... Uh... I mean, a, a left government trying to mobilize people behind a national developmentalist program, but in, but under the terms of a left-wing government, whatever those might be, I mean, that's just intolerable to the Latin American right. And that's that's the problem that's faced. And I think being pragmatic means taking that into account. Okay,
2: I have a quick point on this. One of the things that people don't realize about Latin America, especially Brazil, is that the Cold War never ended. Yeah, this is... Venezuela and Cuba are seen as, like, existing threats to uh, Brazil who have infiltrated agents everywhere, especially doctors working <laughs> in underprivileged regions, yeah, right. helping the poorest of the poor in Brazil with great social medical service, while Brazilian doctors sit off in, like, major cities and call them slaves and shit. Um, even that is considered a communist infiltration. La- the I, I, was, I, was
0: a, I was a Christian family man until a Cuban doctor treated me, and then I became a communist.
2: And now you have VD. <laughs> <laughs> The Cold War never ended. And I think that is it something that hasn't been spoken enough in Venezuela is that the, polari- the polarization of Latin American elites never, never ended from the Cold War. They still viewed everything through the lens. And I think a lot of the viciousness and also solidarity with the viciousness from these similarly vicious elites in Argentina, Brazil, and Colombia, who are actually the most more more murderous elites in Latin America, yeah. who really like to send uh, goons with chainsaws against campesinos whenever it suits them. Uh, have all um, are still living this Cold War threat because the left was never never as crushed fully in Latin America as the rest of the world. Phil, you wanted to come.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I mean, um, it's a good point, and you know, I think it's the kind of it is the kind of um, observation you can only really get if you're on the ground there. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I'm certainly not saying, um, and there isn't, you know, there is nothing in what I said to suggest that this doesn't require. Um, what I propose doesn't require confrontation, breaking down um, traditional kind of oligarchic elites, um, even breaking, you know, and breaking apart their kind of concentrated power. Where, however, it, however, um, however, it might be, but like I said, I mean, I don't think that process of, you know, uh, democratization and economic development. Um, is socialism? I just think it's surely one of the, surely one of the positives that we should take in terms of a broad kind of positive thing is not to be, is to um, reclaim that term and not to allow it to be used in reference to um, transitional poor and developing countries and whatever limited and paltry gains can be made in poor and backward states and that those should not anymore Be used in kind of in order to measure the success of socialism or anything else.
2: Uh, I want to make a quick pushback and introduce a new topic for discussion about Venezuela. My quick, my quick pushback is that um, while uh, again, I mean, for me, as having grown up in one of these developing states and having all my political investments there, it might not be socialism, but it is a form of left-wing politics that needs to. For me, it is a necessary form of left-wing politics. In these sort of places. The second thing I want to push back is another thing I think is interesting and hasn't been spoken enough about in Venezuela, and I'm going to be a little bit uh, pedantic by characterizing it in terms. So, Gramsci, in a lesser known footnote, describes a mode of rule in between uh, hegemony, which is ruled by consent, or outright force, which is ruled through just the repressive forces of state and outright dictatorship, which he terms corruption fraud, in which there's a crisis which is unable to be resolved through either uh, consensus or repression and which the ruling elite finds itself having to rule through elements of a black market economy, which also not only just depends on uh, illicit exchanges and looting and patronage networks, but also sowing dem- demoralization among certain sectors of the population. I think it could be argued. And again, this is very speculative that in part of what we've seen with this current exchange crisis and a massive black market in Venezuela is an example of this form of rule, which is in part by pushed by the sections of the Chavista elite to enrich themselves, and in part pushed by uh, elements of the Venezuelan traditional business class in order to both undermine the Chavista state and also pursue a very
0: uh, lucrative black market, I'm sure. That's, a, that's an interesting observation. I, mean...
2: I think we should also agree that at least one position unites us all, and I think you should, is that
0: Australia needs to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We can we can all rally behind that program of, of the minimum program. The, the minimum programme getting rid of Australia.
2: International Solidarity
0: <laughs> <laughs> Right, and I, that, that was a more cheery note to finish on, which uh, which I'm happy with. Um so on that I'd like to, to thank Ben for joining us this time. And uh if everybody would like to say bye and see you next time. Well, it was a pleasure, I hope to be back. Alright, bye bye.
1: Bye-bye.